Good morning, I'm Mike Overstreet, a pastor at Element 3 Church. And I want to begin today with a song. That's right, I'm stepping onto Sam Nunnally's Sermon Corner. It's one of the most familiar songs of the 20th century, but I want to run an excerpt from it to get it on our minds this morning. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. What's the song? What a wonderful world. Cherished by many, loved by all, intimately tied to that raspy, deep voice of Louis Armstrong, the musician who revolutionized jazz in the 20th century. And I actually have a confession for you this morning. I used to not particularly like this song. I know, a mortal sin. And I guess I shouldn't say I didn't like it. I thought it was fine. It's more that I found it painfully naive. I can be a cynical person, which is shocking, I know. And I remember when I was younger listening to it and thinking, really, what a wonderful world? What world do you live in, Louis? I see flowers and roses and whatnot, sure. But I also see war, famine, disease, oppression, suffering. I remember thinking, it's a nice dream that you're selling, Louis, but nothing more. So the song fell squarely in the bucket of lovely, but eye-roll-inducing. But that actually changed about three years ago. You see, it came on, and it was one of those times where the song just got stuck in my head. And for whatever reason, I did something that I often do. I went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole. You know what I'm talking about. Those times when you hear about something you don't know much about, pull up its Wikipedia, and then before you know it, you've lost three hours of your life that you'll never get back clicking through 800 links, learning more obscure information about how water towers work than you ever needed to know. And yes, that is a real example from my life. So I started, and before long, I was deep in the life of Louis Armstrong. But unlike most Wikipedia sprees, this exploration actually impacted me. You see, I learned something about Louis Armstrong that I didn't know. I discovered that he led a life often defined by struggle. Born to a teenage mother, abandoned by his father as a baby, he grew up in one of the worst neighborhoods in New Orleans. He was surrounded by extreme poverty, violence, and the segregation of the South. He dropped out of school at the age of 11 and then spent almost three years in one of the worst juvenile detention centers in Louisiana, known for its abuse and terrible conditions. As an adult, he experienced three failed marriages and actually had to raise his cousin's son after her death. He also saw his career impacted by the mob's influence in music and the far-reaching impact of racism in America. And yet, through talent, perseverance, luck, and generosity from people in his life, he was able to move up through the jazz scene ultimately redefining the genre with his innovative and emotional solos, stage presence, and vocal work, helping to create the free-flowing style that we know today. But what really struck me about this dive 
was that I discovered that all of this happened well before he ever performed or recorded What a Wonderful World, which he recorded at the end of his life. And with that context, the song actually changed for me. It wasn't naive, blissfully ignorant, or oblivious to the sufferings and struggle of this world. No, it was sung by someone well acquainted with them. Someone who had quite frankly faced more than I could ever imagine. And in that, it became a song by someone who made a divine choice. They had chosen to look at and face the horrors of our world, but still choose to see the beauty and to hope for more underneath it. To face reality as it is and choose not to despair. To still say in the face of it all, what a wonderful world this is and could be. And I think that is beautiful. And it's a sentiment at the heart of our new series here at E3 that we are calling What a Wonderful World, where we are going to explore some of the strangest and most challenging books of the entire Bible, the books of the Old Testament prophets, books that are often long, confusing, and quite frankly, skipped over by most readers, though they take up nearly as much space in the Bible as the entire New Testament combined. They are books that seemingly operate in the exact opposite way as this song. Because when first approached, I'll just be honest, I found them to be intimidating and despairing. They're full of woes and warnings that seemingly just hammered me about the brokenness of our world. And yet, within these books, there is so much more than that. You see, underneath their critiques is a profound worldview of hope. I've actually come to find that the prophets challenge and and call us to deconstruct things, but not for the sake of despair and destruction. Rather, to call us to see God's vision of goodness for what our world is and what it could be. And in that light, I believe the prophets change entirely. Rather than despair, they invite us to see that underneath their messages is a beautiful invitation from God to experience his vision of life here and now, to see the potential for beauty that already saturates his good world and to allow that vision to motivate us to find it and bring it to reality, to teach us how to face the brokenness of our world and yet through divine eyes, gaze through it to the other side and sing with hope what a wonderful world this is and could be. And I think that's beautiful. That is the heart of the prophets. That's what we're going to dive into over the next six weeks. The prophets and their themes seeking to discover the wonderful vision of the world that they invite us to live within. But before we do, we need to start with who the prophets are. For many of us, we hear the word prophet or prophecy, and we begin to think fortune teller, horoscopes, or biblically, future predictions that God used to proof text himself by fulfilling them later. But that's not really it. You see, only some of the biblical prophets predicted the future and only some of the time. See, that was just a small part of a much larger message and purpose that the prophets fulfill in the Bible. The three Hebrew words for prophet relate to seeing, like with our eyes, and to being called for a purpose. See, to be a prophet, in the Bible is more than just being a fortune teller. 
It is to be someone who sees the things of our world as God sees them and has been called to deliver a message about that on his behalf. It is to be a messenger of God. This is why the expression or some form of it, thus says the Lord, occurs over 350 times in the prophetic books. This messenger role was their calling and their task. It's what defines their vocation. And it was one that was very, very difficult. To get why, I actually want to play a video from a group called The Bible Project, which I've actually introduced you all to before. It's a group of theologians and artists that create videos about the Bible and its major themes. And their video on the prophets is fantastic. So we're going to roll that and then come back after. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a fortune teller, someone who predicts the future. That's what being a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the biblical prophets sometimes speak about the future, they're way more than fortune tellers. How should I think about them? Well, they were Israelites who had a radical encounter with God's presence, and then were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf. Like a representative. Right, and the thing that they cared about the most is the mutual partnership that existed between God and the Israelites. Right, the partnership. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and invited them to become a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his character to the nations. And so this partnership required all Israelites to give their trust and allegiance to their God alone. In the Bible, this partnership's called the covenant. But the leaders, the priests, the kings led Israel astray and they broke the covenant. And so this is where the prophets came in, to remind Israel of their role in the partnership. And they did this in three ways. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of the covenant. The charges usually include idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, and allowing injustice towards the poor. Ah, so like covenant lawyers. Right. And so second, the prophets called the Israelites to repent, which means simply to turn around. They spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and change their ways. But Israel and its leaders didn't change. Things went from bad to worse. And so that brings us to the third way the prophets emphasize the covenant. They announce the consequences for breaking it, which they called the day of the Lord. Oh yeah, the apocalypse, visions of the end of the world. Well, sort of. The prophets were mostly interested in how God would bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violent nations around them. And while explaining these local events, they often used cosmic imagery. Cosmic imagery? Yeah, like Jeremiah. He described the exile of the Israelites to Babylon as the undoing of creation itself. The land dissolves into chaos and disorder, no light, no animals or people. Or Isaiah described the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos, stars falling from the sky, the sun going dark. For the prophets, when God acts in human history to bring justice, it's a day of the Lord. So the prophets aren't talking about the end of the world. Well, hold on. They're doing many things at once. The cosmic imagery shows how these important events of their day fit into the bigger story of God's mission to bring down every corrupt and violent nation once and for all. The prophets cared about the present and the future, and the cosmic imagery allowed them to talk about both at the same time. Got it. So no matter when you live, the day of the Lord's bad news if you're part of Babylon. But it's good news if you're waiting for God's kingdom. The day of the Lord pointed to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And once again, the prophets use cosmic poetry to describe it. They see a new Jerusalem, like a new Garden of Eden, with all humanity living at peace with each other and with the animals. And there's a new messianic king who restores God's kingdom in a renewed creation. Beautiful. So those are the three themes in the prophets. 
These prophets must have been very powerful, persuasive speakers. Well, some were, but others lived on the margins. They would often perform strange symbolic stunts in public to communicate their message. Like when Ezekiel lay in the dirt and built a model of Jerusalem being attacked by Babylon. Or when Isaiah walked around naked for three years as a symbol of the humiliation of exile. So did people pay attention to them? Not really. The stories in these books show how the prophets were a minority group mostly shunned by Israel's leaders. And their writings were a kind of resistance literature. Most people ignored them, that is, until their warnings came true in the Babylonian exile. And after that, people began to take their words seriously. Yes, the works of these earlier prophets were inherited by later unnamed prophets who studied these texts intensely. They're the ones who arranged the Hebrew scriptures as we know them, including the books of the prophets. Okay, and there's 15 books of the prophets. The big three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then there's a collection of 12 smaller prophetic works unified on a single scroll. And in each of these books, you'll read stories about the prophets and their poems and visions, all arranged to show the cosmic meaning of Israel's history. How God would turn their tragic story of failure and exile into a story of hope and restoration for all nations. And it's that twin message of prophetic warning and of hope that the prophets cared about so much. And it's a message that we still need to hear today. As you can see, the prophets play a huge role in the biblical story, but they're also perhaps the most challenging books to engage and understand. And that's for a few reasons. First, they assume that you know a lot as the reader about ancient history. They reference nations of their day without providing any background. Nations like Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt that their audience would have known. And they also assume you know a lot about the Old Testament assuming you know it like the back of your hand because they're speaking to their generation of Jewish audience. So they only let you know where they fall in the biblical story through these brief hyperlinks and statements about X or Y king, nothing more. Things that they assume that you'll just catch and can place immediately. So they're easy to get lost and they're very hard to place. Second, the prophetic books have a very weird form. The prophetic books are written almost entirely in ancient Hebrew poetry, and they have very little actual narrative. Anytime you see words like this in the Bible, when they're slightly offset, that's a poem. And guess what? That's almost the entirety of the prophetic books. They're largely poems mixed with parables, songs, metaphors, and symbolic plays, making them creative but incredibly hard to decipher, especially once you lose the poetry by translating it into English. Third, their structure is hard to follow because it's rarely, rarely linear. They focus in on a key theme and then hop around it seemingly at random, speaking to it in this poetic form with repetition and rhythm. It's almost better to approach them more like jazz than a narrative story. They start with a theme like injustice, and then they repeat this message about it over and over and over again. But each repetition hits it slightly differently, accentuating a different note or harmony within it, which makes them very free flowing, but incredibly hard to get. But what truly makes the prophets difficult is their message. They arrive when God's people have rejected their calling to be a blessing to the world. Instead, choosing injustice, conflict, and war with the empires of their day. Paths that as God's people, they were not called to take. And if taken, 
will lead them to disaster. In other words, the prophets arrive as Israel drives towards a cliff at full speed. They're God's messengers sent out of his love to call his people to stop, to go a different way, which makes their messages at times incredibly dark. They address the brokenness they see in the world and in God's people in idolatry, war, injustice, greed, hard topics. And then they often speak with a very dark tone. They often speak in woes and warnings because quite frankly, they're desperately trying to get God's people to change course before it's too late. But tragically, if you know the story, the prophets are largely rejected. And as the Old Testament closes, God's people ignore them. They choose war with the empires of their day, Assyria and Babylon, and they lose. Israel is conquered, taken from the promised land to Babylon as slaves living in exile. It's this moment in the biblical story called the Babylonian exile, and it is the most disastrous moment in Israel's history. But can you imagine this from the eyes of the prophets? You see the writing on the wall. You see where Israel is going. You're trying your hardest to get things to change, and you're just not heard. I mean, it's heartbreaking. And in that space, it creates some bleak text, which quite frankly makes them easy uh, for us to despair in while we read. And yet, to despair while reading the prophets is to miss their purpose. From underneath their messages rings a beautiful note of hope for the spaces in our world that by all accounts should only produce despair. See, they cast this vision of potential beauty and hope for a wonderful world, which actually produces some of the most beautiful texts in the Bible on the other side of the despair that they face. One of my favorites comes from the book of Ezekiel chapter 37, and it's a perfect example of what lies underneath the prophets. The prophet Ezekiel is trying to minister to the exiles living in Babylon, people who have lost everything, their homes, their temple, the lives of their family, their future, everything. People who no doubt, given the circumstances of their world and what they had faced, felt despair. But I want you to listen to his message. The Lord took hold of me and I was carried away by the spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones covering the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer. Then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched muscles and flesh formed around the bones, then the skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. 
Then the Lord said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. And then the Lord said to me, listen to this part, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open up your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit or my breath in you and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. Ezekiel delivers a message of hope for return from exile. Hope that God can be found even in the spaces where he feels the farthest and we feel farthest from hope. Hope for a new life out of what only appears dead. Life coming out of dry bones. Hope saturates the prophets. Hope for renewal in the midst of what looks barren. Hope for peace out of chaos. Hope for justice out of injustice. Hope for light shining through the darkness. Hope cries out and changes everything about what they are and what they say to us. They do not call us to look at our world in despair. They invite us to see the world with new eyes, to see underneath and beneath the pain, brokenness, suffering, grief, to see that underneath those things, there is a world that is seeped in the presence and goodness and care of our God. A world that though broken is beautiful and good and brimming, divine potential for so much more. And in that, they are meant to move us, to feel that divine longing for beauty and change, to see the world as God sees it, and to let that reshape us into what he created us to be, a people of blessing to the world, a people of peace, love, hope, a people who experience and invite others into the healing and the renewal that God promises and longs to bring about for his good world. A people who believe in their bones, that beneath what should make us despair, there is a God of hope. And that should change everything about how we approach this message, the message of these prophets. I know from my own story, like with Armstrong, I now look at the prophets completely differently. And what I once thought was despair, I have come to see a hope far more beautiful than I first believed. One that calls and empowers me to see, face, and confront what's gone wrong. It's not naive. It doesn't ignore the brokenness. It calls us to see it, to name it. But at the same time, it tells us that we must refuse 
to believe that it gets the last word on us or our world. I mean, it is a hope that invites us to see through the brokenness to the beautiful, divine, potential dwelling underneath. It invites me and it tells me that I can live within that. I can be changed by that. And if I'm willing to, I can join God in helping to create it. That is the invitation of the prophets. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my world and then I hear that message, I mean, it becomes good news to me. So, as we head into this series, as we head into the prophets, I just want to ask you, where do you need to find hope again in this season? Where do you need to hear that you can have new eyes for our world? That it's not as dark as we're told it is, that there is light there, that there's potential for more light, that it's just bubbling underneath the surface. Where Where do you need to hear that dead, dry bones can be given new life? That whatever you're going through, whatever it is, wherever it is, how hard it is, whatever that thing in your life that has led you to despair, where do you need to hear that that too can be redeemed? Where do you need to sit with the prophets and their symphonies of divine jazz their major themes and wild, often confusing and always challenging notes, but not for the purpose of despair, rather to find their invitation of newness, their vision of potential beauty, their message of hope, to learn to be people who through the God of hope can face it all and still say to themselves, what a wonderful world this is and could be if I would just find the God of hope working within it. That's the message of the prophets. And I don't know about you, but that's a message that I need right now in this season. Amen.